Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sussingham. This is a special Florida Matters for me as it is my final one as the host. I've been associated with Florida Matters in some capacity or another since its beginning in 2006 when Carson Cooper and I began co-hosting a new program that would give an in-depth voice to our community about the issues and events that they cared about most. Hosting Florida Matters has given me the opportunity to ask your questions when speaking to scientists, politicians, religious leaders, businessmen, farmers, so many fascinating people. For a journalist, it's been extremely fulfilling. But it's time for me to devote more time to my other projects. I'm stepping back from hosting duties, but Florida Matters will continue and will be undergoing some exciting changes in the coming months, so stay tuned. This is also a special program because my guest is historian, prolific author, and Polk County native Cantor Brown. Cantor has taught history and political science at Florida A&M University and has written many books on Florida history. His new biography is called Henry Bradley Plant, Gilded Age Dreams for Florida and a New South. Cantor Brown, welcome to Florida Matters. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Robin. So your book, Henry Bradley Plant, Gilded Age Dreams for Florida and a New South, tell me about that subtitle. What I was trying to do is convey that what we know about Henry Plant is really only a small part of his story, that in fact his vision for what he was trying to accomplish was much broader and grander than really any of us have been able to see previously. But he really wanted to transform the South, and he wanted to link the South through railroads, through integrated railroad resort steamship lines into the nation to furnish it directly to the people of the North and the Midwest. So he had a great vision. Yes, but how he got to the point he could begin trying to implement that vision I felt was one of the the most fascinating aspects of his stories because it gets into all sorts of scandal and shenanigans that you expect of the Gilded Age when we all think of the robber barons manipulating each other, fighting each other, and trying to squeeze every dollar they could out of the American public. Amassing Uh, that kind of wealth. There were some scandals. That's exactly right. Give us an idea, Henry... Bradley Plant. Give us an idea what he was like as a person, as a man. As would be true of any human being, there were good aspects and bad aspects to him. To the good, he was very loyal. If you were his friend, he was going to stick with you even at great cost to himself. On the other hand, his relationship with both of his wives in the very kindest way involved ups and downs and in a more cynical perspective involved callous treatment on his part or painful or cruel treatment. He had to learn lessons in life and to me one of his great strengths is that he did learn. 
he always tried to learn from his mistakes. Not that he never lapsed and made the same mistake twice, but that he truly tried to become, I almost said a better person, and I hope that's true, but certainly he tried to avoid repeating the errors of his past. So as Um, you looked into his life, you could see him evolve. Absolutely, he did evolve. And he evolved to the point that really almost uniquely among his robber baron cohort, he embraced diversity. I mean that where individuals such as John D. Rockefeller would be so narrow in their religious viewpoints, anti-Semitic, anti-Roman Catholic. Plant, in fact, was very ecumenical in his friendships, in his support for other people's right to practice their religion freely and without restraint. He felt great anger almost, I think it's fair to say, at the growing mistreatment of blacks in the American South and specifically in Florida in the 1880s and 1890s. It was bad. Then. Uh, I think you yes. put in there there were more lynchings in Florida than anywhere else. People are always surprised to hear that, yeah. Robin. But from 1885 to probably 1935, on a per capita basis at least, Florida led the nation in lynchings. And he was appalled by this. And he was appalled. And, and I want to say that his very close friend, and I think protege, Henry Flagler, and he shared that. And at one time in the 1890s, when a Tampan had just gotten elected governor of Florida, they appealed to President Grover Cleveland to send military into Florida because of the drift of politics into this more extreme racism and bitterness against black Floridians. Nothing came of it, but it doesn't mean they didn't try. And I know that he did own slaves at one time, you talked about, but it was complicated. He was embarrassed by this later in life, and he said that this couple, this young African-American couple, asked him. They said they were going to be sold, and they approached him and said, why don't you buy us because we're going to be sold, and we'd like to go take care of your his at, wife was at ailing. At least that's the story, that's the story he wanted he told, preserved. Right. Because at least have, he was embarrassed he, he by the whole embarrassed. incident. He was embarrassed. And there is no reason to think that he in any way mistreated either of these people. Uh, in fact, there's a reason to think that once freedom arrived that he may have been very supportive of them launching their lives in the new era. Now, his um, role during the Civil War was complicated and interesting, but I want to talk first about Tampa. The he, pirate city, so yeah. how, how appropriate. <laughs> when he arrived, Plant's first visit to Tampa, you write, the party left at 5 a.m. on December 1st, 1883, and required 15 hours in transit. He was born in 1819, correct? That's correct. So he would have been 64 years old when he first visited Tampa. That's correct. And I just loved this scene. I wanted to, because you say reporter William Drysdale recorded the scene. And I'm going to read that. Knots of men were down on their knees and haunches on the sidewalks, making diagrams of their property and telling how much they had already been offered for their lots and how much they expected to realize on them. There was a regular boom in real estate as far as sellers were concerned, but I did not see any excited men rushing around looking for a chance to buy. Drysdale added, 
I was in Tampa just five hours. Next time I come, I will not care to stay more than four hours and a half. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we look at Tampa so I guess today, it and it's, it's this wonderful him. city, or at least I think it's a wonderful city. Every amenity you could think of, all sorts of entertainment and diversions, the beauty of the environment. That's not the way Plant saw it back then. All he was looking for was a connection to allow him to run steamships to Havana, Cuba. And he had wanted to do it from Cedar Key, but another railroad controlled Cedar Key. They blocked him out. And so he sent his son, Morton Plant, and a couple of trusted business associates down to survey the coast. And they settled on this backwater village of Tampa, which had had no residents as recently as six or seven years earlier during a yellow fever outbreak. You said it took 15 hours to get here from, let's see. From Kissimmee. The train went down to Kissimmee. And And he was building at the time the railroad from Kissimmee to Tampa. But it wasn't finished. The tracks got as far as somewhere over around Auburndale. And then there was a gap of 16 or 20 miles to what's now Plant City. And he had to get out and get a buggy. And he rode in a buggy over some very rough pathways that paralleled the new railroad grade and got back on the train in Plant City and went on into Tampa. Along the way, there are wonderful stories of him stopping and talking to people, not telling them who he was, but saying, you really need to invest. You ought to build a town here. There's a railroad coming. But he didn't care for Tampa. And that really never ended. He did eventually, of course, build a magnificent Tampa Bay Hotel, and he came to love that. The hotel. Uh, That's right. So in a sense, his feelings for Tampa warmed, mostly because of the hotel. But he loved to greet guests, his friends, as they arrived and show them to their rooms and make sure they had everything they wanted and join them in the bar and the restaurant and just be a host. So Tampa for Plant, it wasn't an end in itself. It was a means to the end, which was Havana. That That's one secret that this book, I think, reveals that we haven't known. Plant's dream, his Gilded Age dream, was to create a transportation resort link to Havana, Cuba. He loved Havana. He loved Cuba. And after the Spanish-American War, as he is nearing his final illness and his death, he still is full of plans and visions for how he wants to rebuild Cuba and how he wants to build a great resort hotel in Havana and a grand opera house. But he died before he could bring it about. And even then, all he did was cap over 30 years of attempts. He had been trying that long, but one thing and another had kept him from doing it. But in the meantime, he came to accept Tampa, and he came to love the Tampa Bay Hotel. So he felt a a real sense of accomplishment, but those grand dreams he had never came to fruition. Why did he build the Tampa Bay Hotel? Was it because he was influenced by Flagler and St. Augustine and is that why? I mean, what, what made him all of a sudden want to come down here and build this huge hotel in Tampa, which, as you said, was a backwater? Well, he very much was influenced by Flagler. And let me mention again, 
there are all these stories, and they're great stories about how they were locked in conflict as uh, business rivals. Couldn't have been further from the truth. Flagler was an executive of the plant system. The plant system uh, was the railway and steamships. That's right. Okay. And uh, he and Plant were close friends. I mean, pallbearer number one at Plant's funeral was Henry Flagler, Mm. which will give you an idea of how close they were. Right. But Flagler was the one who was alive about hotels, and he had done something that was so very special that Plant hadn't previously considered, and that is Flagler wanted to recreate an entire community as a resort for the wealthy, and he chose St. Augustine to do it, having been initially guided to St. Augustine by Plant. And what he accomplished when Plant got there and saw what was becoming the Postelion Hotel, he just realized he was going to have to give up his reluctance to get into hotel building. But his initial plans to build the Tampa Bay were much more modest. It was only as the, the Postelion opened up and it just captured the imagination of the nation and the world that Plant realized, no, I've got to expand this. I've got to do something grander than I realized I was going to have to. And interestingly, President Grover Cleveland played a part in that. The three of them had become friends, and Cleveland visited Tampa and urged Plant to aggrandize his vision for this hotel. He wanted to put it down on the channel side area, but the federal government, the title was still locked up from the old Fort Brooke days, and they couldn't get that land. So Plant selected the site on the west side of the Hillsborough River there. And we should point out that it's what is now the University of Tampa. That's correct. That was the hotel. Yes, absolutely. But when did that hotel close? It was sold to the city of Tampa in 1904, I think it was. 1904. Uh, But it, it, it was operated as a hotel for a while and then went through several other guises until the University of Tampa began occupying it, I want to think, in the 1930s. This is Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sussingham, and today we're speaking to Cantor Brown, who's written a new biography on Henry Bradley Plant, Gilded Age Dreams for Florida and a New South. So, Cantor, let's talk about Henry Plant and Tampa. Besides the hotel, what do you think were his major impacts on the city of Tampa? Well, he put Tampa on the map. I mean, that's the fundamental thing. The publicity that derived first from Tampa becoming the end of the line for the plant railroads, the connection on the Gulf for his steamships, which began running almost immediately. The ships got bigger and better, but he made that connection right away. Lots of publicity from that. And then the Tampa Bay Hotel just captured world attention. So is it fair to say what Flagler did for Miami, Plant did for Tampa? Yes, I think that is fair, but I want to put in a plug for Plant on Miami. He was the one who first thought about building a railroad from Tampa to Miami, well before Flagler had any plans to build down the Atlantic coast. And he sponsored an expedition through the Everglades to see if it was feasible. Plant did. That's correct. He was going to build it from Tampa to Tampa to, to Miami. Miami. We're still trying uh, to do it. That's right. <laughs> and the expedition, uh, they almost died on the way. They 
obviously concluded that it wasn't feasible to build a railroad across the Everglades. How uh, did they almost die? They got stuck in the swamp? They got lost trying to get across the glades. They were missing. Nobody knew where they were. And suddenly they appeared and had all these tales of their adventures. And a book right by itself on that expedition would be fascinating. But as I say, Flagler was on the board of directors of the plant system. Mm -hmm. He had been part of the vote at a meeting in Tampa to sponsor that expedition at plant's request. After it was found not feasible to build from Tampa to Miami, the leader of the expedition asked if he couldn't approach Flagler and see if he would build down the Atlantic coastal ridge there. Plant said, by all means. And, of course, Flagler did pick up the challenge and did build to Miami, and there we have this magnificent international city. My thinking was then the reverse, because I thought Plant chose the west coast of Florida because he didn't want to compete with Flagler coming down the east coast of Florida, but it sounds like Plant was first. Plant's dreams were expanding Mm -hmm. as he was able to accomplish some intermediate goals like getting a railroad to Tampa and getting uh, steamship service to Havana launched. And he began to explore operations in Jamaica, and by the early 1890s was considering expanding into South America. Miami was perfectly located for a center for steamship operations by then to South America. So it was all part and parcel of this growing concept he had of what the plant system could be, literally reaching from Nova Scotia to Rio de Janeiro. Did Flagler start his railroad down the east coast of Florida before Plant, or were they working in conjunction? How did that all work? I know they were friends. You said they worked together. But Flagler was on the east coast plant you think of coming to Tampa. So how did that work? Flagler's original vision was not to get into railroads. That was Plant's vision. And Flagler got that from Plant, just as Plant got the hotel business from Flagler. So they really Uh, had a symbiotic relationship. Absolutely, they did. That's that's interesting. And almost to the point, I can't point to a specific incident or quote or diary entry or anything that says this. But even though they were only about 15 years apart in age, I think Flagler came to look up to Plant if not as a father figure, as an older brother, certainly, and as a mentor. It's worth saying, by the way, that Flagler was a lot wealthier than Plant. Flagler had gotten his start with the Standard Oil Company. He was treasurer of Standard Oil. And by the 1890s, he was probably worth, I'm just guessing, in in dollars of those days, about $70 million. Plant was worth 15 to 20 million. And Plant did not come from a wealthy family. He came from a modest background. But somehow he got in with, as you said, the the robber barons, with Flagler, with Vanderbilt. How did he make those connections? The beginning involved the express business. When Plant was young, in the 1830s, the 1840s, was that the U.S. Postal Service was not very efficient, and it was also very expensive. This especially related to packages, as a result of which by the late 1830s, early 1840s, private individuals were beginning to develop 
particular routes by which they would oversee the delivery of packages from one city to another. And that was called the express. And it became the express business mm-hmm. because the service was an express service. It got the package there quicker. It got it there safer. And in a, especially the first big express system that developed was called the Adams Express Company. And through a variety of steps in his life, Plant became associated by the mid-1840s with the Adams Express Company. And that's where he made these And he began making really his connections, connections there. Right. So he must have just been a very likable because they sort of took him under their wing and stuck by him. And I think it was his own personal charm. Yes, clearly he had what we would call charisma today. But I'd also add that he was honest in his dealings with others. Now, everybody who dealt with him might not agree with that if if they didn't come out on the good end of a deal. But he was known throughout his career for honest dealing. He was loyal, too. And those were attributes during the period as American capitalism grew from the late 1840s into the post-Civil War era. Those were attributes not seen everywhere. And those to whom he was loyal, in turn, became fiercely loyal to him, and especially the group of men who grew rich at the core of the leadership of the Adams Express Company. Now, you think, well, I've never heard of Adams Express. I mean, I've heard of Wells Fargo and Western Union Express and all that kind of thing. Adams was the biggest, most powerful express company because of the gold discovery in California in 1848 and 49, the California Gold Rush. They got out there real quick and began specializing in shipping gold back to the Federal Customs House in New York. The port Must of have been New a York. dangerous job. Uh, it was. Well, uh, just an average express man, and Plant started out as an average express man, carried a pistol and literally was supposed to put his life on the line to protect those letters and those packages that he was charged with delivering. And he just started out there like on the line. That's right. And then worked riding his way a, up. Riding on a steamboat first and then in a railroad car, a mail car on railroads, protecting the packages and mail that had been entrusted to him. And also, as opposed to Henry Flagler, he didn't marry into wealth. He married, I guess, for love, whereas yeah. Flagler married for, had very good connections with his marriages. Yes, uh, absolutely. His father-in-law, Mr. Harkness, Flagler's father-in-law, mm-hmm. was already very well established and could give him a hand up. Plant's father died when he was six or seven years old and w- did not leave e- even a modest estate. He left a few hundred dollars to his son. His widow was in such desperate straits that she had to marry a man who was living on the frontier in upstate New York. And so Plant, where he always pointed to his Connecticut background, in fact, the the key experiences of his early life happened in upstate New York. They involved religious events, they involved political events, and personal events, all of which molded his personality and helped to explain certain facets 
of his later career and his life. Did his early uncertain circumstances help to explain his drive? Because you read this biography of Plant, and he lived 10 lives in his life. It is incredible everything that he did and he accomplished and his constant traveling and two marriages and a wife that died and a child that died. And I mean, there was so much. And I'm just wondering if he was driven, what drove him? Robin, you're exactly right. He was determined to get rich. Not unusually. This was the era in which manifest destiny blossomed in America when he was just getting started in the express business. This was the age of invention. He rode the first railroad in New York within weeks after it was opened. He rode pioneering steamboats up and down the Hudson River. He moved upstate New York just three years after the Erie Canal opened and revolutionized American history. And the promise of what all this was going to bring was right there before his eyes. And he had friends. They may not have been in quite as desperate circumstances as he was as a young man, but who nonetheless were able to become multimillionaires on their own and who later became backers of the plant system. Mm -hmm. The charm you've talked about, the drive to become wealthy, the loyalty we discussed, all of that kept people with him throughout their lives. And as they gained in fortune, plant had more backing and was able to accomplish more. We talk about his connections. And one thing I found so interesting when you talked about the Civil War years was how the personal ties among Plant and the powerful elite in the North and the South buffered them. Um, Plant was able to do business in the South. He was from Connecticut. He was a Yankee, but he was able to do business in the South. And he was able to travel back to Connecticut, probably with a note from Lincoln saying that he can travel back through the Union lines. Somehow, because he had made personal connections to leaders, to Jefferson Davis in the South— And then to very powerful people in the North, he was able to do his business, and he made his first fortune. Sounds like selling arms to the South. He did just about everything, including selling arms to the South. Let me identify one person who was key to all this. The general counsel for the Adams Express Company was William H. Seward, Mm. who, of course, became President Lincoln's Secretary of State, in which capacity he ran the intelligence services so he uh, knew Seward from the from Adams From the Adams Express. Express. Uh, did, didn't just know him. They were close, as were all of his Adams partners. So he uh, was close to Union forces and Confederate that's right. forces. That's incredible. That's, that's correct. And somehow he walked that line. For a while he did. Always in the South, there were people who understood that he was double dealing. And there's no better word that I can come up with or phrase. He was double dealing. He did provide reliable service. That was always a hallmark of Adams Express and the Southern version of Adams Express that Plant created, which he named the Southern Express Company. But all the time he was reporting back to Seward's agents for the Lincoln administration. All the time he was distributing profits made from the Confederate government to his New York partners. And this was known, and he was bribing Confederate officials. One of his personal lawyers was the attorney general of the Confederate states. One of his close business partners, Christopher Memminger, was the secretary of the Treasury for the Confederacy. So he was tied in to the business angle 
involved in the lifeblood of the Confederacy. Everybody wanted to make money. We don't read a lot about that in the way the history of the South has been written. But there were lots and lots of people making lots and lots of money off the Confederacy. And Henry Plant and his Southern Express partners were a part of that. The book is Henry Bradley Plant, Gilded Age Dreams for Florida and a New South. The author is Cantor Brown. Cantor, it has been a pleasure. Well, for me too, Robin. Thank you. Absolutely. And thank you so much for listening. It's been an honor to host Florida Matters, and the best part was always hearing from you, our thoughtful, well-informed, and attentive listeners. Florida Matters is a production of WUSF Public Media. This show was produced by Steve Newborn. I'm Robin Sessingham. Thanks for listening.